Folks, good morning, and uh, it's good to see you all here with us this morning. Over the past number of weeks, if you've been with us, you know that we've been studying together the Ten Commandments, and we would say, uh, those of us who who do a bit of preaching regularly, we would say that that's a particular style of preaching, uh, as looking at one little, very small passage and exploring the theme of that. Uh, This morning, we're going to change a little bit in in how we deliver a sermon this morning, and it's a little bit more of a study as to the passage that we've read together. So that's just to give you a little bit of a heads up as to how we're going to approach this this morning. I also want to give you another warning to get your minds ready as well. To help us understand this passage in John, and indeed to help us think about what's coming in the week ahead as we think about Easter, we need to get into the mind of the Jew. Uh, at the time of the Gospel of John, at the time of Jesus, it's so easy for us 2,000 years and 2,000 miles uh, later to actually miss everything that's going on. And so this morning there's a a little bit of background in here for you to, to try and help you understand, to really see the majesty of Jesus as he did ride in to Jerusalem. So as we come, let's take a moment and let's pray as we prepare ourselves to hear from God. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you that this morning we can gather together as your people. And as your people, we wait expectantly on you, desiring to hear from you so that we can grow and we can mature as disciples of Jesus Christ. Father, as we come to hear this familiar story that we hear every year, I pray that you will help us to to see it afresh. I pray that you will challenge us afresh so that we will catch a great glimpse of Jesus, our risen Savior. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. I think you would have to have locked yourself in a dark room and been out of total communication over the past months if you have completely missed what has been happening in the world, mainly in the Arab world. We've seen Egypt and Tunisia depose their long-standing leaders. There's been rumors of change needing in Morocco and Bahrain and even whispers in Saudi Arabia. People are rising up against Uh, regimes and leaderships that they have difficulties with. And as we look at each of these little places along a world map, and as we see it on the news and we see the intent of the people on the streets, they're normally all holding one thing. Yes, they'll have their placards and their banners of what they want, but in one hand they will have the flag of their country. Because at their heart it's not just about making life easier for them. There's a nationalism There's a desire that their country will be what it truly can be. That it will not be under the control of the thinking of one person, but it will be a leader who is elected. Now, whether we agree with how it's all happening or not, for the purposes of this is irrelevant. Whether we agree with the deposing of leaders in this way or or whether we prefer it through democratic elections, that's your own personal choice. But we have seen in the past four or five months the rising of nationalism across uh, the globe as people start to, to have pride in their nation, pride in their country, to get away from what they see as the bad of the past 
and to move forward into a future where there is hope. Hope for their nation. Hope for themselves and hope for their children. And this is what is at play in the passage that we have read together this morning in John chapter 12. Nationalism is rising. Palestine in the time of Jesus we know was ruled by the Roman authorities. We'll know that because we know our Easter story. We know that it had to be the Romans who would crucify Jesus because the Jews couldn't do it because Rome had the authority. Rome had conquered Palestine in around 63 BC and to give you a familiar name, General Pompey arrived and and took over the territory and, and claimed it in the name of the emperor. Thirty years later, Rome really had to solidify its, its rule, and so it set up Herod, Herod the Great, Herod the First, this Jew who came from a, a particular tribe of people that people really didn't like, and he was set up as the king, but he was a puppet. He sold his Jewish roots to be a puppet for the Roman rulers. He had no authority. He was there in the throne only by the appointment of Rome. And just under 100 years after Rome took control of Palestine, the people were beginning to rise up and take on a national pride that freed them from being under the authority of Rome. And their hope, their hope became to be centered on one person. Their hope of a new Palestine An Israel harking back to the heyday of David and Solomon, a united kingdom. This hope was fixed on Jesus. Why? Because Jesus was radical. Jesus preached a radical message of hope. People's eyes were open to the truth of who God is. And the hypocrisy of the religious ruling classes was shown for everyone to see. Jesus preached and and also Jesus did The miracles that Jesus undertook and that he worked, people had never seen them before. So his actions and his words came together and people focused on Jesus as their Messiah. The one that had been promised throughout the whole of the Old Testament to come and to save God's people. So chapter 12, we start at verse 1. Because we need to understand where Jesus has come from. And so he's making his way to Jerusalem to make that one-year pilgrimage, the the pilgrimage that had to be made to Jerusalem, joining with over two million people heading to Jerusalem for the Passover. But the night before he enters Jerusalem, about six days before the Passover, he stays with friends in Bethany. And these are friends that we have encountered before in the Gospels, Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus, who incidentally just moments before, has been raised from the dead. And even at this gathering, this simple family meal, friends together sharing food, the preparations have started for what the next six days will bring. In verse 3 we read, Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Nard has that pungent, well, it's a nice smell. I shouldn't say pungent, but it's very filling. It it 
diffuses into a room, but still its smell remains with you. Nard was used in the temple. It was used at the front of the temple to bring a sweet incense into the sanctuary and the house of God. We're familiar with nard as being the perfume that was used to to be put on, on the bodies of the dead so that the smell would be put down and the nard would come through as the smell. And Judas protests. He says that this is such a waste of money. Hours and hours, days and days of a laborer's work would be needed to to pay for this. Jesus stops him and says, leave her alone in verse 7. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Jesus knew the significance of this. Of course he did. He knew what was ahead in the week that would follow. But it was completely lost on his disciples. In fact, they would only get this after Jesus had been glorified. His death, his resurrection, and the coming of the Holy Spirit on his disciples. And while this was happening in this home in Bethany, the crowds had been gathering. They'd not only come because of Jesus to hear him teach, uh, to, to affiliate themselves with this man who was going to be their hope in bringing back a united kingdom, a unified Israel, but they were nosy. They wanted to come and see Lazarus as well. Is this truly the man who was dead but is now alive? Even the significance of Lazarus being raised from the dead one week before Jesus himself would be raised from the dead should not wash over us either. Jesus, the one who would bring life, but yet would die so that he could bring true and real life. Verse 11 says that many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. So the scene is set. Everyone's in place, ready for what would become Palm Sunday as we celebrate it, but that day when Jesus would make his entry into Jerusalem. So the next day comes and Jesus makes the one and a half mile journey to Jerusalem and the crowds start to gather along the route. They wave their palm leaves in their hands and they start quoting scripture to him. And here the people are acting in both word and deed. The action is the the waving of the palm leaves. As a child, it was just a palm leaf, nothing significant at all. But in the Jewish mindset, this was the symbol of liberation. This was the symbol that the Jewish community had put together to to really flag it up the noses of the Roman authorities. The currency was Roman with Caesar's head on the back. But the nationalistic Jew said, no, we're not having any of that. We're going to have our own currency. And what did they stamp on the back of it? A palm leaf. This was the symbolism of their desire for freedom. And here they were, standing along this route from Bethany to Jerusalem, one and a half miles, waving their symbols of nationalism, welcoming their king into Jerusalem. And they start quoting scripture to him. Hosanna. Hosanna, we've heard already, literally means give salvation now and comes from Psalms 113 to 118. If you ever want to know what was the last song Jesus ever sung, this is it. 
Psalms 113 to 118. These are called the Hallel Psalms. These are the liturgy of Passover. They're the preparation of the Jew coming to present themselves for Passover. And whenever Hosanna was, was reached during the singing of the Hallel, every male worshipper would stand up and waved his lula. A lula was a bunch of willow and myrtle tied with a palm leaf. The symbolism continues because there's a direct quote from Psalm 118, verses 25 to 26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And this was the prophetic view. This is what the people were waiting for. The one who would come in the name of the Lord, who would rescue God's people from their enemies. And this is where our story takes a little bit of a twist. Because we know the truth of what the Messiah would come to do. But in this time period, the Messiah was the one who would charge in on the horse. He was the one who would take Jerusalem and rise up and bring the people and call them to war. To get rid of Rome, to get rid of their fake king and establish the true Messiah, the true anointed king of Yahweh, of God, so that God's kingdom would extend and expand forever. But of course we know that Jesus wouldn't come like that. And even in verse 13, they start to put in a little bit of their own. They move away from Scripture and they say, Blessed is the King of Israel. Blessed is the King of Israel is not in the psalm. The nationalistic movement has, has put it in there to add force to what they're talking about. So the moment is for the people. This is their king riding in. But what's he riding on? A donkey. Not exactly what they had anticipated. Not exactly the great stories of Judas Maccabeus who rode into Jerusalem around 167 BC who, who made Jerusalem a city once again for the Jews no, Jesus was riding on a donkey. Jesus never described himself as the political leader. He never promised that he would get rid of Rome. The people in their own minds had concluded what their Messiah would look like. And they were putting Jesus into a box that would fit their, their means and their ends. You see, Zechariah chapter 9, or verses 9 and 10 Say, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots of Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Far from the view that Jesus was going to be a militant Messiah, he was coming to usher the kingdom of peace. And it wasn't just a physical kingdom of peace. Because yes, we know that when we understand who Jesus is, when we come to, to grasp Jesus, he brings us peace. And as peace lives through us, so it is in our communities, it is in our world. But Jesus came to give the spiritual peace, to usher in the peace that we would know as we wrestle in our hearts as to who will be God, the true living God, 
or the things that we prop up in his place. And the crowds keep coming. The word spreads and the route becomes full of people waving Jesus into Jerusalem. Of course, who are there in the background, as they always are? The Pharisees, the religious rulers. And they say to themselves, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Two million people, the whole world. We would say the Pharisees were exaggerating things a little bit, but they were closer to the mark than we think. Because we read in verse 20 of John 12 that there were Greeks present among those who went up to worship at the feast. So from the perspective of the Pharisees, the world indeed had come to worship Jesus. The Jews, the Gentiles, Roman, Greek, wherever they came from, they had come and they were crying their allegiances to Jesus. This was the final act for the Pharisees that would influence them on the action that they would take against Jesus. So it's Palm Sunday. Jesus rides triumphantly into Jerusalem amid this whole nationalism that was rising. So 2,000 years later and 2,000 miles across, what can we take from this? What can we learn that will help us on our path of discipleship as we follow Jesus? I want to offer you three things this morning. First of all, we need to have a correct view of Jesus Because we know of how the week's going to end, we'll gather here next Sunday morning, or if you're visiting with us, you'll gather wherever you worship regularly. And as God's people, we will come together and we will celebrate what Jesus did for us through his death and his resurrection. We know that Palm Sunday will give way to Easter Sunday. But the problem is that people didn't have a correct view of Jesus. They couldn't see what was about to happen. Jesus never set him up as the political conqueror for his time. Jesus was very clear. He presented himself as the Son of God. But as we've said already, the people knew what they wanted and they made Jesus fit their little ideals and their little boxes. The mold was the one that they had cast, not what Jesus had cast. So we have to ask ourselves a question. How do we view Jesus? What is your view of Jesus this morning? Is he the good luck charm that satisfies our traditions and our social groups? Is he the jack-in-the-box who we put away when we don't need him, but get him out whenever it is convenient to us? Or is our view that he is the hope, the living hope, our hope and our future? Scripture is clear in what it tells us about Jesus and indeed who he said he was. He is the Son of God. He was there at the foundation of the world and now sits at the right hand of the Father. He came to seek and to save the lost. He is the rescue plan fulfilled. Jesus is not what we make him. He is who he is. So I challenge us all to recognize him as the radical Messiah who saves our very souls rather than any political ideal or nationalistic plan. This week, as we prepare for that great celebration, please have a correct view of Jesus. 
The second thing is that we must understand Jesus. Verse 16 tells us something about the disciples. It says, at first his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. After three years of hearing his teachings and seeing his works, the disciples still didn't get it. They still didn't understand. They hadn't grasped what the purpose of Jesus was. They had been with him. They had heard him. Their lives had been changed. But it wasn't until after he had been glorified that they fully understood what Jesus was all about. And I think it says a lot about the disciples in their own hearts. They joined with the people in in ushering in this, this leader. They got caught up in ushering Jesus into Jerusalem to be the Messiah that they want. Our hearts. Do our hearts fully understand Jesus? The heart is the place where God does his business. It's in our hearts that God transforms us so that it is displayed in our lives as we follow Jesus and know the forgiveness of our sins. In our hearts, do we understand Jesus? Do we understand that Jesus is not just a convenience for us, but is the one who needs to be at the center of everything we do? I've been challenged about this recently and about the lordship of Jesus Christ. As a staff team, each Tuesday as we gather together, we've been reading through uh, Rebecca Manley Pippert's book, Out of the Salt Shaker, that we uh, really engaged with again at the Salt Shaker Conference a few weeks ago. And the last chapter that we've been reading was about Jesus is Lord. And Rebecca Manley Pippert says this, in the New Testament, the lordship of Christ is no more abstract, sorry, is no mere abstract principle. The gospel writers illustrate as well as teach the principle. And we shared as a staff team that we think we've completely missed it. Jesus at the center. Oh, we sing the songs and we know that it's right, but in reality, do we fully understand the lordship of Jesus, the authority that was given to Christ, the authority to heal the sick, the authority to control nature, the authority to save sinners and forgive sins? The Lordship of Jesus. Jesus is the center of everything we do. We must understand and confess Jesus as Lord. He came so that we could have the confidence in him for our salvation and our eternal hope, rather than the false gods we construct in this world. Get a real understanding of Jesus. Find him in the Bible. Take time to recognize what Jesus says about himself. And can I encourage you to take this holy week to have Jesus as the focus of our lives as we all continue to mature in him. If you've been following our update and and what's happening over Easter, you'll know that this building is open over the next week at lunchtime and in the evenings. Come and find some quiet space to understand Jesus, to discover who he is in our hearts so that we can be clear that he is at the center and he is the Lord of our lives. So we must understand Jesus, really get to grips with who he is. We must have a correct view of him and and who he is. And thirdly, can I encourage you to enjoy Jesus? 
I know it sounds so cliche to enjoy Jesus. But can you imagine what that day was like as a person standing beside the road, putting aside all the hopes that you had in this nationalistic Messiah coming along, but just in a crowd of people singing, chanting, and waving uh, their palm leaves? Can you imagine it? It's quite easy to get caught up in a crowd. And I imagine that whenever the royal wedding comes next week, uh, we'll see people getting caught up in the crowd and in the cheering. It's very easy to get caught up in it all. The impression that we get is that the mood was jubilant, a great street party and celebration. But we've recognized this morning that they had it wrong. It was the wrong celebration. They were looking after their their own things. They weren't thinking of the spiritual and the things of God. They were thinking about making life more convenient for themselves. Even the disciples didn't get it. It strikes me time and time again whenever we read the accounts of the disciples how really they weren't very disciply in what they did. But yet, we have something greater than what the disciples didn't have at that time. We know what's going to happen. We know what next week looks like. And the disciples came to know that, and they continued on their path of discovering who Jesus was after his death and resurrection. We know that Jesus will die. We know that he will rise again. And we know that he will ascend into heaven to be at the Father's right hand for us. We know the events of this next week have had and will continue to have salvation effect on humankind. We know that this was a week that changed the world completely. And can I encourage you not to dwell on the sorrow of it? Yes, I know and recognize that there will be moments where we have to take time to to recognize what Jesus did That Jesus died for me and for you. He carried that cross for me and for you. He was distant from God for that time for me and for you when he took the sin of the world. He endured the sufferings for us and he did it freely. And he wants us to celebrate He doesn't want us this week to be sorrowful about what he's done. He did it with you in sight. And he wants us to celebrate and enjoy the blessings of salvation that were won for us at Calvary. It's Palm Sunday, but another Sunday's coming. Easter Sunday, when we will truly celebrate what Christ has done for us. So as we set out this week, a week that is filled with remembrance but also celebration, can I encourage you as I challenge myself to have a correct view of Jesus so that we can truly recognize who he is? Can we have a right understanding of Jesus and what the purpose of his coming is? And can we enjoy Jesus this week as he has presented himself for us as the sacrifice that would atone for our sins and take the wrath of God from us as he took the wrath of God on himself. We celebrate 
we remember. Allow God to work in your heart. Allow Jesus to be at our center, the center of everything we do, your life and mine, so that we can truly recognize him as the saving Messiah, the one who would save our very souls so that we would be free from the pain of death and enter into a living hope that is with God. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for these passages in Scripture that we read. We read how your plans all come together, how you sent your one and only Son to endure the highs and lows of life for us. The jubilation of this day as people welcomed him in, but he was the only one who knew how it would end. He bore the sorrow. He bore the pain. But he did it freely for us. So, Father God, we thank you that Jesus was willing to do that for us. We thank you for what it means to us. And I pray that this week you will help us to fully get Jesus. To fully understand him and have a right view of him. So that we can truly celebrate with all of our being as we recognize him as our Lord and Savior. And we pray it in his name. Amen.